Amen. Please be seated. It's my great pleasure uh, to, with excitement to introduce Benjamin Glad to you. Dr. Glad is professor of New Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. He's been teaching there for 12 years. He's married to Nikki, and they have two sons together. Um, Dr. Glad is one of the most prolific uh, scholars of biblical theology living in our day, and it's uh, really a pleasure to have him come and open the word to us. His area of expertise happens to be uh, drawing readers' attention, students of the Bible's attention uh, to the unity of the scriptures, how God is the author over the whole of the scriptures, and to see the story of the Bible unfold, that redemption that God's working in simple terms, but then in complex ways, he's able to help students see that. He's contributed to numerous articles on this topic, this subject. Um, He's written several books, one that was very helpful to me early on when I was studying for Genesis to start that series, a book called From Adam and Israel to the Church, A Biblical Theology of the People of God. He's written uh, or contributed to the Handbook on the Gospels. He's contributed to uh, several other resources or uh, resource documents, most recently just coming out now. Uh, will be available very soon, the Dictionary of the New Testament Use of the Old Testament. He's one of the major contributors to this document. He spoke at our Sunday school and helped us understand better what biblical theology is. He'll be back tonight to do more of a lecture, again, on this topic of biblical theology. But today we have him on Reformation Sunday, someone who champions the Bible so strongly as a, a fitting guest to come and preach because we believe the Bible is really the best gift the Reformation gave us because this is how we've come to know Christ. And we want to grow in our knowledge of the Bible, so we grow in our knowledge of God. We, know, we grow in our knowledge of Christ. And so I'm convinced, I'm sure, that Dr. Glad, as he comes and opens the word to you, will enhance that reality in your life. And so we're glad to have him as this year's Reformation guest speaker. Thanks so much, Tony. It's so great to be with you all. Uh, Please turn with me to Matthew 1. We're going to read Matthew 1, 1 through 17. Here is God's word. We'll start here in verse 1. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Abinadab. Abinadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, 
Jehoram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, Ammon the father of Josiah, verse 11, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheotiel, Sheotiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathon, Mathon the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus who is called the Messiah. Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. May God bless the reading of his word. Let me pray. Father, may you bless your word. May it grow in our hearts, draw us close to you. Whatever we say and do this morning in our thoughts and our actions and our words, May they be honorable to the Son of Man. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You know, for about $100, we can take a DNA test. I suspect several of us in here today have taken a DNA test. Now, why do we take these tests? Well, perhaps it's to reveal our genetic dispositions, diseases, health risks, these sorts of things. But most of, most of us who take DNA tests... We're trying to determine who we are. As they say in the South, what family are you from? Who's your mother? Who's your father? You know, maybe we're related to a well-known president or celebrity. Aren't we all related to to Kevin Bacon, right? Six degrees or something like that. Ancestry is important to us because we desire to be part of something big, something grand. And so the sermon this morning will explore this idea of the people of God, how the ancestors of Jesus set the stage for something marvelous. And it's this this blessing that Jesus secures that we participate in. The people of God don't begin with Abraham, do they? The people of God begins in the garden And here it is at the heart of the Reformation is God's covenant to this people group. I love what Bavink says about the people of God. He says, for the church is one single gathering, not multiple people groups. It's one single gathering, one ecclesia composed of those who are enrolled in heaven and who will one day stand before God as a bride without spot or wrinkle. And the maintenance of this unity of the whole church heightens the sense of community, steals one's nerve, and stirs a person to fight for it. But before we look at the people of God in this genealogy, let me first explain why Matthew wrote his gospel. Matthew's going to write his gospel about 35 or so years after Christ ascends. And Matthew is going to write, both to Jews and to Gentile Christians. 
And at the heart of the narrative is this. Jesus of Nazareth, from little lowly Nazareth, just a town of 500 people, he is the center of all of history, not just history before him, but all of history that will transpire after him. All of Israel's institutions, the law, the temple, the covenant, all of the events from the garden to the exile, and all of those individuals that play a part in those pieces anticipate the coming of Christ. And we learn here, just turn with me briefly, maybe you don't have to turn a page, in 123, this right here is the heart of Matthew's gospel. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. And if you don't know Hebrew, this is what it means, which is what Matthew explains. God with us. Let's look at verse 1 1. We're going to read 1 1 a couple times this morning. Matthew will open his gospel with two allusions or two references to the Old Testament here. And he's going to do so with a single line. And here it is This is the book of Jesus, the Messiah. It's that line right there. This is the book. That line is found only two places in the Old Testament. It's first found, oddly enough, in Genesis 2-4. This is the account, or this is the book, of of the heavens and the earth. Isn't that fascinating? The creation account includes a genealogy of the cosmos itself. And then the second line, this is the book, occurs in Genesis 5.1. This is the written account, or this is the book, of Adam's line. We get that in Genesis 5.1. So we call these allusions. Maybe some of your cross-references will draw your attention to them. Most do not, unfortunately. But this is a clear one. But why in the world would Matthew begin his gospel with this allusion to both Genesis 2 and Genesis 5? And I think it's Amazing what he does. Because Jesus is the last Adam. And he has come to reverse the effects of Adam's transgression. And he's going to establish a new creation. Do you see? Genesis 2. Jesus is going to create a new heavens. And a new earth. Which will begin at his resurrection. And Jesus will do so as a greater Adam. He has to, watch this, he's got to undo the effects of the first Adam and do what Adam was supposed to do. So he's doing two things simultaneously. Reversing the curse and getting it right. Doing righteousness. Obeying the covenant. See that? Yet he has to pay for covenant failure. See that? Both are happening simultaneously. Now, a word about genealogies in general. There are about 25 genealogies in the Old Testament. Uh, And some books have them more than others, like Chronicles, Genesis. We see them all over the place. There are about 25 of these. And why in the world do we have genealogies in the first place? Well, most genealogies connect the children 
to a particular ancestor. Now, this is important, for example, uh, if you're determining whether or not one is qualified to be a priest. They need to be a descendant of Levi. And so typically in these genealogies, it goes something like, here's Adam. We call him the progenitor or the ancestor. Here's Adam, and now here are all of Adam's children. Do you see that? So the idea then is that we can determine who are the children of Adam. But what Matthew does, Matthew's going to take this and he's going to completely flip it upside down. Notice in verse 1, 1 as it begins. This is the genealogy of who? Of Jesus. We're expecting this is the genealogy of Adam, or this is the genealogy of Abraham, or this is the genealogy of David. No, you see how it's reversed. This is Jesus' genealogy, not Adam's genealogy. Well, what does that mean? All those mentioned in the genealogy find their fulfillment not in the progenitor, not in the ancestor like Ab- uh, such as Abraham or Adam or David. No, All, everybody listed here finds their identity in Christ. They will no longer be known as a son of Adam or a son of David or a son of Abraham. They will now be known as a son of the king, a son of Jesus, their ultimate identity. In other words, one's alliance to Christ trumps all DNA. That is hugely important to why we are gathered here today. Because if, it were, if God's promises were dependent upon our DNA or our ethnicity, we would be in big trouble. We would always be second-class citizens in the Bible. Instead, what is affirmed here and affirmed elsewhere in Scripture is that the promises of God depend on one's relationship to Jesus. You want to be a child of God? You want to be an apple in the eye of Yahweh? Join yourself to Jesus. In a world that is looking for ultimate identity, look no further than Christ Another piece that we find in this genealogy is the presence of four women. Now, women in genealogies, we, we do get that. But here we have four unusual women. If I were to ask you to write up a genealogy of Jesus and mention four women, would you give me these? Maybe Ruth, maybe. You would probably give me Sarah, Rachel, Leah, the great ones. But instead, what do we get? Tamar? It's awkward, Genesis 38. The Bible's all rated. It's difficult to read that in a group, with a group of junior hires. Tamar's there. She's a Canaanite, not even an Israelite. She's from the land of Canaan. Rahab, again, another awkward. She's also a Canaanite. Ruth, she's a Moabite. In Bathsheba, even though she's probably an Israelite, she's related to Uriah. In fact, she's identified here uh, as being Uriah's wife, and Uriah is a Hittite. So she's, by all, uh, she's in reality a Hittite. So we have four women who are outsiders. But we also have women, several of these women have been scandalized. 
as well, or something like that. Tamar, with what she did with Judah, she deceived her father-in-law. We have then with Rahab the harlot, uh, and then with Bathsheba, yes, of course. In other words, here it is. Scandal colors all of these four women to some degree, at least three of them. If God uses scandal to establish his program, to establish redemption, watch him do so again with Mary, with the virgin birth. Think of it also like this. There's not a person in here who has not been scandalized by someone else. Whether it's emotionally, physically, we have all been scandalized and we will all scandalize someone else. We are all sinners and we do bad things. But watch this. God uses those bad things and what does he bring about? His glory. And here he brings about the birth of the Messiah. And thirdly, we learn something about the women. Oddly enough, all of these women, they secure the godly line. Tamar, ironically, this is crazy, Tamar ironically preserved the godly line by sleeping with Judah, her father-in-law. What? Rahab hid the spies. Ruth, a Moabite woman, married Boaz, and so on and so forth. God uses outsiders to secure the godly seed, to bring about the birth of the Messiah. Know, too, that God will use scandal in your lives for his glory. Let's talk a little bit about David. That's really, this whole genealogy is so focused on David. Look at verse 1 again. This is the book of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, who came before whom? Well, Abraham was born before David. So why do we have David first and then Abraham second? It's because of what Matthew's trying to do. This is David's genealogy. David is the primary figure in this whole thing. In fact, look at verse 17, all the way down at the end. Thus there were 14 generations and all from Abraham to David. Do you see that? And 14 from David to the exile to Babylon and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now, comment, this is fascinating. Shows you how sharp Matthew is here. So do you see 14, 14, 14? So if you were to look at this genealogy, you have 14 generations in each of the three groupings. And it's unclear to us why Matthew has done 14, 14, 14. We think there's somewhat of a consensus here. We think that it's because of the way that um, the numerical value of David's name in Hebrew. So for example... In Hebrew, when you count numbers, you don't count one, two, three, four. Those are called Arabic numbers. You may not know this, but when we count one, two, three, four, five, those are called Arabic numbers. The way that Hebrews count, they count with their alphabet. Aleph, one, bet, gimel, uh, one, two, three. So you use each letter of the alphabet to count. I don't know if you follow me here, but this is kind of where it's going. David's name is three letters in Hebrew which carries a numeric value of 
guess what? 14. 3 and 14. And so the sense is this, that the way that Matthew has arranged this genealogy is that he's playing with David's name. That David's name is four, three letters of 14. So that even the way that this whole thing is structured goes back to David. So why so much emphasis on David? What's the big deal about him? Now remember, a little thing in the Old Testament called the Davidic Covenant. And where do we find that? 2 Samuel 7. It's in 2 Samuel 7 where God promises to David that he will give him a son and that this son will rule over all the kingdoms And not only will this son rule, he will build a house for God. But instead, what do we get? We get a dynasty that is riddled with idolatry and sin and wickedness. In fact, look at this. Verse 6. And Jesse, the father of King David, and David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. It's right there. Matthew's saying, that's the sin of David. Do you see? Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. David killed Uriah and slept with his wife. That's the fall. I mean, the Davidic dynasty is just getting going. And what happens immediately? Sin enters. And now you go through all of his descendants. And here it is. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, bad guy. Underline him with a red pen. The father of Abijah, Abijah, bad guy. That's like, that guy gives another red pen. Asa, good guy, green pen. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, again, green pen there. The father of Joram, uh-oh, red pen. Uzziah, good guy. Jotham, good guy. Ahaz, bad guy. Hezekiah, good guy. Manasseh, bad guy. Amon, good guy. Josiah, good guy. The father of Jeconiah, really bad guy. See that? See that? Bad, good, bad, good, bad, good. Issues, 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 issues. Why? Because of what David did. His kids behave like their father. And so what do we get? Their sin, watch this. It leads to the exile of Israel. Look at what we get here in verse 11. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers in the time of the exile to Babylon. Because the kings were wicked, the people became wicked, which resulted in Babylonian exile. Do you see that? David's kids messed up. Because David's kids messed up, it affected the nation, and the nation went into exile because the kings got it wrong. And this is precisely where Jesus is born. He is born when the nation is in spiritual exile. They may not physically be in Babylon. They're back home physically. But spiritually speaking, they are in exile. And it's through David's son, one will emerge who is faithful to obey the covenant that Yahweh promised. The Bible longs for a son of David, a better David, one who will resist sin and temptation and build an unbreakable kingdom of righteousness. And this is precisely what we get. I love what J.I. Packer says here. 
he speaks to this. It's amazing. He says, it is striking to see how much the Bible deals with godly people making mistakes and God chastening for them, chastening them for it. David makes a run of mistakes, seducing Bathsheba, getting Uriah killed, neglecting his family, numbering the people for prestige, and in each case is chastened bitterly. But David found repentance after each of his lapses and was closer to God at the end than at the beginning. God can bring good from the extremes of our own folly. God can restore the years that the locusts have eaten. Go back to God. His restoring grace waits for you. There's one more thing I want to show you in this genealogy as you can tell it's a pretty complex genealogy there's theology woven in everywhere here here's one more piece and I'll leave you with this let's read Matthew 1 2 Abraham was the father of Isaac Isaac the father of Jacob and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers see that line there Judah and his brothers That line alludes to Genesis 49. Judah and his brothers. I'm going to read you a passage from Genesis 49, 8 through 11. I've clipped it a little bit to tighten it up. You will recognize portions of this. I'm going to read it because I want to show you what Matthew's doing. This is from Genesis 49, 8 through 11. Judah, your brothers, it's the 11 brothers, will praise you. Your hand will be on the necks of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. The scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff between his feet until he whose right it is comes in the obedience of the peoples belongs to him. He ties his donkey to a vine in the colt of his donkey to the choice vine. In Matthew 21, 2, Matthew alludes to that passage again. This is what Jesus says. He tells his disciples, at once you will find, he's talking to his disciples here, you will find a donkey tied there with her colt. Untie them and bring them to me. That's an allusion to the same text. And then finally, at the end of Matthew's narrative, we get the third allusion. And here it is. You know this text. But watch, let's reread this. The 11 disciples, oh, that's interesting, because remember, Judah had 11 brothers, and now Jesus, a descendant of Judah, well, guess what? He's got 11 brothers now, too. See that? You drop, drop Judah, a drop a Judas, now there's a total of 11. The 11 disciples, when they saw him, what did they do? They worshipped him. Just like what we get in Genesis 49. Your father's sons will bow down to you. The difference is that in Genesis 49, the bowing down refers to one of allegiance and submission. Here in Matthew 28, not only do we get submission, we get awe and worship and he is the God. So it's even escalated. And then finally, you know this verse. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, 
And that's precisely what Genesis 49 is talking about when it says, in the obedience of the peoples belongs to him. Matthew demonstrates that Jesus is the son of David. But you see, this is, just, this is it. This is the thing about theology and about who Jesus is. Jesus is a better David than David. David messed up. And the son, so think of it like this. The son of David is, is actually a better David than the father, do you see? And that Jesus was faithful. And Jesus, did, did he just rule over a little slice of the Middle East in the nations? No. How, how much does he, how far does his reign extend? All of it. Does he reign just over the physical earth? But what about the planets? What about the rest of it? Does he reign over that too? Yes, he does. What about the spiritual realm? Does he rule over demons? The good angels and the bad angels? Yeah, he rules over that too. In other words, how much does Jesus rule over? And the answer is, all the things. David's reign was just but a little picture, it's a broken picture of the reign that we have in Christ. Jesus is a better David than David than David ever was. His atoning death pays the penalty of Adam and David's sins, and his righteous life earns perfect obedience that God gives to believers. What difference does this make in how we read our Bibles? And I think, I think it's direct. We've got to read. You see how Matthew is reading the story? See this? This is more than just a list of names. Every name that you see in this genealogy, there's a narrative. There's a story attached. So what do you do? You take all the stories in the Old Testament. All of them. It looks like there are mistakes made from a human perspective. But what does God do? He designs them. He uses them. So we take every single event from Genesis 1 all the way to the end. And they're all put there. They're all designed by the Almighty God to what? Bring about the birth of his son. A descendant of Adam. A descendant of Abraham and David. This is why the reformers were so intent on sola scriptura, the Bible alone, scripture alone. Because it's a story that we read over and over again. We don't just read it one time. You watch it again and again. Or you read it again. I'm used to uh, explain this with uh, some of my students. There's a movie called The Prestige. I don't know if you guys have seen The Prestige. It's fantastic. Christopher Nolan. And you watch it. I don't want to tell you the end. I'm not that cruel you watch it and as soon as you finish it you learn something so you want to go back and reread it or re-watch it same thing with the bible as you work your way through the bible all of a sudden you now figure out i got it i can put it together then what do you do you reread it in light of christ he's the key that unlocks it and you reread it and you do it once and twice and you spend the rest of your days doing that and sharing it with others. That's what Christians do. That's what the reformers wanted us to do. 
let us celebrate the Reformation by doubling down on our commitment to the Bible, to learning it and to applying it to our lives. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for this genealogy. It's a genealogy that encourages us who disobey and who scandal, scandalize others. And it also brings encouragement to those who have been scandalized. You use these things in our lives to bring about your glory. And may you continue to do so even today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.